evening and welcome to Rare Book School, week four. The speaker is amplified. I am not. This is the dentist's room in four counties. Can you hear me back there? Josh? Yeah. Okay. So I scream. Uh, so I continue to scream. This week, our lectures are John Bidwell speaking on the origins and development of machine-made paper making on Wednesday, and that's in the rotunda. And uh, my usual Thursday evening lecture on Thursday, also in the rotunda. Our speaker this evening is W.C. Phil, who's a professor of English at CNY in New York City, and uh, has not lectured here before. His title, I should say that this talk was titled before I had received an invitation from Terry to give it here, because clearly the answer to where are the bibliographers of yesteryear is that they're here in Charlottesville at the Rare Book School. A second, not disclaimer, but to give you a sense of my proper colors, uh, I'm a textual critic employed by the Department of English. I have done analytical bibliography, and I have done descriptive bibliography, but I speak in this lecture from the point of view of textual criticism. And if you say to somebody, you're a textual critic, their eyes kind of glaze over. And a better translation would be the theory and practice of scholarly editing is what textual criticism is about, and that's what this paper, in effect, is about. In a recent forum surveying the editorial scene after post-structuralism, I noted the absence of analytical bibliography as a topic in current discussions of editorial theory and practice. The collocation, textual studies and bibliography, appeared in three of the four questions asked of the participants and was repeated in the convener's introduction. Here are the questions that Susan Zimmerman, the convener, asked each of us. One, in what significant ways do you think bibliographical and textual studies have changed in the last 20 years? Specifically, how do you think such studies have been affected by a post-structural critical climate? Two, how do you think bibliographical and textual studies can be most useful to other areas of contemporary research about the early modern period? Three, what do you see as the major problems facing the development of bibliographical and textual studies today? Plan four, what would you identify as the two most important projects, ongoing or prospective, for future research in the field? That was a tall order, and I don't think any of us actually addressed all of those, but this is the substance of mine, or these are thoughts and meditations on having addressed a few of those subjects. Truth to tell, in the last decade and a half, the once firm pairing of bibliography and textual criticism has fissioned, and the study of its core competence, analytical bibliography, finds itself displaced not only by surveys of critical theory within graduate English curricula, but in discussions of editorial theory and practice as well. 
By analytical bibliography, I mean the reconstruction of the printing history of a book from the evidence that survives within the physical book itself. It is to be distinguished from enumerative bibliography, the organized listing and or cataloging of a collection of books according to some principle, and from descriptive bibliography, the detailed description of a book or a collection of books. Historically, the latter grew out of the needs of librarians to catalog their holdings of early printed books. Analytical bibliography, in turn, grew out of the attempt, principally that of Fredson Bowers, but sanctioned by W.W. Gregg, to put descriptive bibliography on a more scientific footing. Bowers' principles of bibliographical description, which many of you are familiar with now, insisted that the goal of bibliographical description was a reconstruction of the ideal copy of a given book, not the description of an individual copy that happened to have survived in a particular collection. That idealism, Bowers was to transpose to the fields of textual criticism and editorial methodology. Following Gregg's appropriation of textual criticism into what he called critical bibliography, Bowers asserted that textual criticism should be subsumed within bibliography, by which he meant analytical bibliography. One might visualize the two fields then as overlapping disks, with the overlap representing, for Gregg, critical bibliography, and for Bowers, the bibliographical way. So convinced was Bowers by Gregg's application of techniques of bibliographical analysis to the problems of editing Renaissance dramatic texts, above all to the problems of editing Shakespearean texts, that analytical bibliography and textual criticism became virtually congruent. The disks overlap one perfectly. It is still not genuinely appreciated <clears throat> within the Anglo-American editorial community how atypical this approach is, as compared, for example, to continental editorial traditions. What drove Gregg and McCarroll, as Laurie McGuire's account shows, was the goal of editing Shakespeare on a more rigorous quasi-scientific basis. Unlike writers of comparable stature on the continent, Petrarch and Boccaccio, for example, Shakespeare left no manuscripts of his plays. Now, parenthetically, uh, many of you will know that there is a manuscript called The Book of Sir Thomas More, in which Han D. has been identified as Shakespeare's. Uh, depending on who you ask, the consensus is that it was Shakespeare's hand, uh, or it's a 50-50 chance and may have been Shakespeare's hand. But by and large, we have, and we've operated under the assumption that we have no manuscripts other than printed text for Shakespeare's plays. Yet because Shakespeare in, is England's national poet, textual criticism in Anglo-American usage has become, if so facto, textual criticism of Shakespeare. And textual criticism of Shakespeare is necessarily a book-based, bibliographically grounded discipline, distinct in its methodology from the manuscript-based procedures developed by continental textualists, although it shares their ideological drive to recover authorial origins. The rationale of bibliography so defined was its ability to remove, in the famous phrase, the veil of print that interposed between us and those missing manuscripts, and to reveal the lineaments of the copy behind the printed text in order to assess its authority and to achieve an edited text closer to the author's original. Whereas in earlier periods, authorial practices were lost in scribal copies, 
or in later periods were suppressed by the standardization effected by printers, in Renaissance texts, authorially distinctive accidentals seem tantalizingly within reach. But the focus on accidentals of these texts as talismans of authorial usage became something of a special case. No other author within the canon routinely calls forth in the preliminary matter of a collected student edition a detailed exposition of exactly how texts were printed in the hand press print, period. The Riverside Chaucer has no such introductory matter on medieval scribes, paleography, or textual transmission via manuscripts, yet few would argue that Chaucer's texts are less problematic in their materiality than Shakespeare's. Evidence of authorial practice occasionally survives in the English Renaissance, and some authors were able, exceptionally, to dictate to printers how their text should be printed. Ben Jonson is an obvious example, Edmund Spencer another, and apparently John Milton a possible third. But for the majority of Renaissance literary writers, authorial manuscripts are not extant and authorial practices substantially irrecoverable. It was this lacuna that analytical bibliography was to supply, identifying the agents that stood between us and our authors so as to bring their corrupting practices before the bar of textual justice. So promoted, analytical bibliography came to be the indispensable preliminary to the editing of all texts of the early modern period, but especially of dramatic texts, which do seem to have been printed more carelessly and with less authorial supervision than comparable non-dramatic texts. Shakespeare, for example, must have seen his two narrative poems, Venus and Adonis and The Rape of Lucrece, through the press, for the printing is very careful, the errors few, and their text singularly unproblematic. The status of analytical bibliography as the uh, beginning or the basis for further editorial work uh, remains in place today. The editorial guidelines to the third edition of the Arden Shakespeare, dated in 1996, specify, technical studies of the printing of the play should be used to achieve as clear an awareness as possible of the process of translation from lost manuscript copy to surviving printed editions. Matters which will affect treatment of the text include the identification of compositors, and in a few instances, scribes, and study of their ascertainable habits of work, the sequence of setting of pages and casting off of copy, the sequence of imposition and printing of the forms, whatever evidence survives of proofing and correction in the form of proof pages or press variants. The findings of investigations of these matters should be summarily stated in the text section of the introduction in such a manner as to indicate their likely significance and the nature and degree of their importance for the editing of the text. This, then, was the context in which Bowers championed the bibliographical way. It is a tribute to the force of his personality and the attractiveness of his vision that this pairing of bibliography and textual studies survives intact in Susan Zimmerman's catechism. So much, then, for the vision but what exactly is it that the analytical bibliographer does? What are the objects of the analytical quest, and by what means are they to be found? Briefly, in my experience, they are these. 
after having arranged the various printed volumes in which a text survives in chronological order, an exercise in descriptive bibliography, one studies the volume deemed earliest, i.e. closest to the author's lost manuscript, to uncover clues to its treatment in the printing house. Next, one studies its physical construction, described in a formula of collation, noting any gaps, disjuncts, canceled pages, replacement pages, and the like. Then one attempts to infer in what order the forms were printed, and whether this order was regular or irregular, continuous or interrupted. Which side of a sheet was printed first? It will show in the ink on the little hillocks pushed up by the type pressing the paper from the other side. The second printed side will show ink only in the depressions formed by the type biting into the damp paper. How many chases were employed by the compositor can be determined by noting the number of distinct headlines used throughout the book and their pairings, because once set up, these headlines were changed only minimally, that is, they updated page references. From these tests, one can infer whether or not the forms were printed and presumably composed in a regular fashion. If so, one can infer that the copy was itself unproblematic and the composition proceeded normally. If not, if the sequencing of forms is random or irregular, one may suspect that there is a problem with the underlying copy and or with its conversion into hard type. But just what this problem was and what the exact sequence of the forms through the press was are normally impossible to tell the evidence of the volume alone. Uh, a parenthesis. I described the 1597 folio of Hooker's book five in a descriptive bibliography of Hooker. And I commented, I think, let me there were three settings, each recto and verso, and they are found in five of the six possible pairings. For some stretches, the order of the forms through the press is quite regular. For others, there is apparent randomness both of the order of the forms and the pairing of the headlines. Somewhat later, I did a detailed analysis of the printer's copy of Book 5 of the Ecclesiastical Polity, which survives in the Bodleian, and inferred from that analysis the process of casting off of copy, the estimating of how much copy is needed, and I'll explain that in a moment, uh, and how the compositors actually articulated their work through setting the edition. There was no way of looking at the printed book alone that would have led me to the conclusions that I that were plain to see if you had the manuscript in front of you, if you had the printer's copy. Uh, it was much more complex in, in the second go-round than it, I had inferred from the first go-round. So there are distinct limits to what analytical bibliography can teach you about the process, the progress through the press of, of a given, given text if you don't have the underlying printer's copy. And for the vast, vast majority of texts of the English Renaissance, we do not have a printer's copy. Contributing to the apparent irregularity was the process of matching copy to type inventory called casting off copy. To conserve type, copy was cast off, that is, type needed for the initial pages was estimated so that the pages need not be composed in the same sequence as the copy. In a folio in sixes, for example, page one, if set first, 
would have to wait for page 12 to be set before the sheet the two shared could be printed. No shop could afford to have so many pages in standing type before two pages, six and seven, could be paired on the same sheet and so printed. To avoid this, copy that would occupy pages one through five was estimated, that is cast off, and composition proper began with page six. Continuing thereafter seriatim from seven, which would make a printable pair, six slash seven, then eight paired with five, nine paired with four, and so on until 12 was paired with one then you start it all over again. Now, I'm talking about the mechanism in folios. I have not done it for quartos, but uh, I suspect that the same problem of uh, placing blocks of type, imposing blocks of type for a quarto will not, will require you, the compositor, to estimate how much he needs so that these blocks can then be switched around. If there are mistakes in the initial casting off or estimation, or if the copy is unusually irregular or difficult, and Hooker's copy had cut into it extensive quotations, uh, some in Greek, uh, some in Latin, uh, that the compositor himself imitated uh, in the printed, as he was composing the printed page that he was working on. The typesetting, if the copy is unusually irregular or difficult, the typesetting will appear crowded where there is more room, more copy to set than has been allowed for initially, or loose when copy must be stretched or padded to fill out unanticipated white space. In the first case, if you're a Shakespearean editor, verse may be set as prose. In the second, prose as verse. In Hooker, of course, this is all prose, and so that's even more difficult to estimate. If you're estimating lines of, of uh, poetry, uh, there's no problem. The line, a line is a line wherever it is, but if you're trying to estimate lines of prose from a scribal transcript prepared for the press, there it takes us a little bit more. Not so much skill, because the, the system they use is pretty primitive, but uh, luck and uh, hoping that it worked, your initial estimates work out. The compositor may adjust the number of lines per page or per column in the first folio, and in imposition shift lines from the bottom of one page to the top of the following one, or from the top of one page to the bottom of the preceding one. And these adjustments can cascade over three or more page breaks, backwards or forwards, until the cast-off copy is accommodated in the available pages. The compositor may tinker with the wording of the text to get it to fit, using abbreviations or varying spelling, or as a last resort, omit text altogether. Once the printing of the volume has been teased out of the evidence of the physical volume itself, the analytical bibliographer assigns the setting of particular forms. That form is the unit of composition and unit of working here, to particular compositors, primarily through spelling tests, which are not strictly a bibliographical criterion. For the first folio, we now have a kind of alphabet soup of compositors, A through I at last count. These are further classified and described as careless or careful 
literal or liberal, preferring this or that spelling, following their lost copy with varying degrees of apparent fidelity or conscientiousness. In addition, in a technique pioneered in the preparation of the monograph on the foot, his monograph on the first folio, Charlton Hinman was able to identify which type case a particular compositor worked from through the occurrence of individually identifiable type sorts. Hinman also studied the nature and extent of in-press correction. Is this a term that is familiar to? Doesn't sound like. All right. Um, once a page had been proofed and authorized for printing, machining, a sample would be taken and given to the master who would glance over it. And if there were anything wrong with that he wanted to change in this last look-through, they would stop the press and make the change there. But they would not discard the pages that were printed before the mistake was identified. These pages were subsequently mixed perfectly randomly. So you do not know in a given Renaissance book whether you, you will not have all corrected forms or all, in, or all earlier uncorrected forms. You will always have a mixture. That is what is called in-press correction. Here, for Hinman, the indispensable tool was his mechanical optical collator, replaced now by Randy McLeod's portable collator. Uh, again, if you haven't used one of these, the, the, <clears throat> the Hinman collator is a huge machine, but basically you saw by putting two copies of the same, quote, page on platforms and looking at them alternately, one through one eye, one through the other, uh, you could pick up uh, differences. There would be a kind of shimmer, uh, and without reading proof in the formal sense, you could pick up these in-press corrections. Uh, Hinman uh, devised this machine because he was, in World War II, was uh, an intelligence officer examining photographic uh, uh, prints of possible target areas. And what you wanted to do is to find out what had changed since the last photograph. So he transposed that to, all right. By comparing the multiple copies of the first folio, Hinman was able to determine just how the final stage of proofing, stop press correction, continued as the sheets were being machined. He concluded, somewhat anticlimactically, that in-press correction was intermittent at best, that copy was rarely consulted to correct textual mistakes, and that proofing was almost exclusively concerned with the elimination of superficial faults, not textual error. Thus far, and no farther, has the veil of print been pulled aside. Though Shakespearean texts printed from manuscripts or from non-extant individual copies of quartos marked as printer's copy for the folio remain texta in abscondita. Try as we may, we cannot recover what the 17th century compositors saw. Fortunately for Shakespearean editors, largely for commercial reasons rather than scholarly ones, current modern spelling editions of Shakespeare mask the fact that the vast majority of spellings that appear in these early texts are those of the compositor or the scribe and not the author. Early promise of textual revelation by a compositor analysis has not been kept. There's a good bibliographical reason for this. 
The basis of compositor analysis is the tacit assumption that the spelling of the printer's copy will influence the way the compositor will himself spell. After all, he is looking at the type as he sets type, He's looking at his copy as he sets type. But as Joseph Moxon's later description makes clear, Moxon's Mechanic Exercises on the Whole Art of Printing, published in 1683-1684, was the first published manual of hand press printing and survives and is reprinted now as a guide to early hand press printing. Moxon assures us that both the spelling and the pointing of the typeset copy was the compositor's responsibility, and he followed the copy letter by letter only in certain instances, when the copy was illegible or the word foreign to him, or when he was setting a page-for-page reprint out of normal text sequence, or when he was an apprentice and being especially literal in his composition habits. Normally, the compositor read his copy, memorized it word by word, plucked the types from the case, and set it as his own fingers, dictated by his brain, told him to. Consider the analogy of touch typing. A skilled typist does not follow copy letter by letter, unless there is a technical term or an unfamiliar usage. Rather, he or she reads as we all do. We take in the first two or three letters, note the length of the word in its context, and supply the remainder ourselves. This is why proofreading errors occur at the ends of words, not their beginnings. We remain unconscious of this shorthand process until we begin typing a text in an unfamiliar language or an unfamiliar hand. Secretary hand, for example, when we first encounter it. Only the beginner transcribing secretary spells out words letter by letter. The adept sees the word as a whole. A colleague of mine was outraged when she spotted a computer-generated banner printed in dot matrix gothic type reading, impacting the brain. What she objected to was impact as a verb. What the banner actually read when I went back to the uh, hall was, impacting the Bronx, (laughs) which is where Lehman College is, where I teach. Five letters beginning BR in an unfamiliar font, and voila! 17th century compositors must have read and spelled in the same way, and the process adjusted the copy spelling to their own, and in the process adjusted the copy spelling to their own norms. It is important to realize that this process was more oral than visual, and that what was memorized were the vocalizations of words, not their visual shapes. Proofing was likewise oral, not optical. Copy was read aloud by a a reader to a listener who checked the typeset version. Outright errors of spelling would be caught, but authorial preferences in spelling were ignored unless the author were present to insist upon them. The whole issue of our thinking visually and not orally, orally, when we describe compositorial and scribal practices of 400 years ago deserves further analysis. For the purposes of this talk, it is sufficient to note that the disjunct between the two modes is reinforced in the text are theatrical scripts whose realization is oral and whose reception is oral. Perhaps, however, not is all lost. <clears throat> all is not lost. And edit- as editors, we may not have the copy that Shakespeare's compositors saw, but we do have the, cop- the copy that the compositors of Richard Hooker's fifth book of his treatise of the Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity did see and set type from. It's Bodleian Library, additional manuscript, C.165. 
In this instance, we can look over the compositor's shoulders, follow them following their copy, and see in some detail exactly how they set type. What do we learn? Alas, the story is the same, but the narrative now begins a chapter earlier. Hooker's autograph was quite as thoroughly transformed by his scribe, Benjamin Pullen, who prepared the fair copy for Hooker's printer, John Winded, as Pullen's transcript was by Winded's two compositors. The veil of print has been pulled aside only to reveal the veil of script. The manuscript corrections in Hooker's cramped and angular secretary hand, the compositor seems to have had no difficulty in deciphering. Pullen and Hooker's italic, used in quotations, is naturally easier for us to read, and Hooker's Greek is eminently legible. But if we want Hooker's own spelling, we are in just as difficult a situation as the editor of Hamlet is. Shakespeare's autograph may well lie behind the second quarto, but its compositors, not anticipating a later generation's interest in the matter, largely ignored the spelling, the pointing, and the other accidental features of his copy. Had one of Ralph Crane's transcripts of a Shakespeare play for the folio survived, as to have, for example, Thomas Middleton's A Game at Chess, we would be in the same quandary as we are at present. Crane's thoroughgoing transformation of his copy for the folio anticipated and was compounded by that of Jaggard's compositors. However, while we cannot recover the <clears throat> autograph of Book 5 that Pullman was copying, we can examine the autograph of Hooker's Sermon of Pride. Difficult as it is for the untrained eye to read, the skilled paleographer can decipher it. And with the autograph <clears throat> behind the second quarto of Hamlet, many an editor would seem to be out of a job. But a psychology of rising expectations intervenes here, and the modern editor will certainly want to consult those missing foul papers to clarify a reading that Shakespeare's apparently difficult hand, perhaps unblotted, but rapidly and carelessly inscribed, has obscured. There's another difficulty here, though it's not a paleographical one. As a document, excuse me, Booker's autograph of his Sermon of Pride is legible enough, but even as inscribed in his own hand, does it as a work express Hooker's intentions. Hooker expected Book 5 to be published. He corrected the press himself, at least intermittently, and he kept revising the scribal copy in matters great and small, documentation, pointing, even spelling, as well as making substantive changes in his, to the scribal fair copy, most of which, though not all, appear in the printed folio of 1597. Were we to desire a Hooker whose thoughts are uncontaminated by the transmissional artifacts of scribal transcription, we would certainly encounter a less complete less satisfactory, less authorially intended state of the text. Booker had no intention of publishing the Sermon of Pride, so far as we know, so simply by printing it, both we and his posthumous 17th century editor, Henry Jackson, are violating Hooker's own intentions, just as Max Broad did in not destroying Franskowska's papers at his death. In Hooker's case, there was, without question, a form of the text of Book V earlier than the one draft Pullen copy, equivalent to a dramatist's foul papers. If we could get back to it, would we not be nearer the authentic, the real, the true Richard Hooker? Well, yes and no. Yes, it would certainly be of interest to see what didn't survive to get printed in 1597, but reprinting what he deleted would surely represent Hooker's in, misrepresent Hooker's intentions, although we could prove, rather than merely speculate, as I have, that Book Five was extensively revised by his, <clears throat> after being vetted by his friends and former students, George Cramner and Edwin Sands. Still, there are extant 
other manuscripts that display that earlier work-in-progress state missing from Book Five. Hooker was blessed, as was Shakespeare, by friends who valued his intellectual legacy and so preserved an extensive manuscript archive. But like the earlier humanist editors who discarded medieval manuscripts of classical texts once they had been edited and published in the printed editions, Shakespeare's friends evidently thought their task finished when the plays were finally collected and published in 1623. Faced with an incomplete polity at Hooker's death in 1600, Hooker's literary executors did what they could with what he left, in coed as it was. So if you want to see what two of Hooker's works look like, one contemplated but never started, the other started but never finished, consult volumes three through five of the Folger Library edition. There you will find pre-copy text fragments, what the French genetic editors call avant text, fragmentary texts of three sermons, notes of his readings, transcriptions from legal collections of the day, outlines of chapter topics, reminders to himself to cite this or that authority, trial sentences, telling figures of speech, expostulations of contempt for the authors of a Christian letter, all material that Hooker would never, would never dream would be preserved or reprinted, everything that the computer now discreetly discards as it saves only the last but one version of whatever document you're now working on. But notice that in following a timeline backward in search of what the author wrote, while you may seem to be moving closer editorially to the Lachmanian archetype, and Carl Lachman is credited for codifying the principles of stomatic analysis in order to create family trees for the descent of classical texts. Compositionally, you are in fact moving backward from intended completion and coherence to the unintended incompletion and incoherence. Hooker's autograph notes for books five, excuse me, books six and eight, which take up 92 pages in our edition, are very tough going. They took their editors a decade to, dis- to, dis- to transcribe them, locate the sources cited, contextualize them, and relate them to the text of Book 8 as it survives. Of course, Hooker and Shakespeare are very different authors writing different works, but that is my point. In each case, the movement backward in search of authorial origins is a movement away from completion and coherence towards the disorder inherent in textual conception. The ultimate expression of romantic valorization of the mind of the poet as the goal of the editor and the source of the poet's artistic merit are French editions of the unpublished notebooks of Paul Valéry or of the Brouillon Proustien, in which the fixed text is abandoned in favor of a reproduction of the flow of writing, the finished work in favor of the genesis of the text. From this perspective, one edits process, not product. Dunn's widely disseminated but largely unprinted poetic oeuvre may constitute a Renaissance analogy, though Dunn had other and less romantic motives than Valéry for leaving his youthful verse unprinted. When Shakespearean editors construct a stomata that <clears throat> posits lost original, originals, their formal procedures mimic those of Karl Lachmann, who in his edition of the Cretius claimed to have reconstructed a particular non-extant manuscript of, a ninth century, of the ninth century from which all subsequent copies descended. But these Shakespearean editors' ideology remains romantic and for Renaissance texts anachronistic. Their stated goal may be to recover a historical artifact, missing to be sure, but singular, concrete, and fixed, like the Lucretian archetype, 
But what is actually missing, the analogy of Hooker's manuscript legacy remains valid, is not a single, complete, or fully coherent transcript, the unblotted papers Hemings and Condell speak of with such approbation, not a poem like Venus and Adonis or the Rape of Lucrece, but a play script, a draft of a text that, despite its irrecoverable authoriality, would remain fundamentally unstable, as Ernst Honigman argued a generation ago, and Jonathan Goldberg and others have more recently argued, although on rather different grounds. Furthermore, in whatever form such a manuscript may have existed, it was oral in its origins and much of its materiality, and in its theology, in much of its materiality and its teleology. And so, forever, always, it will lack the stability and fixity of print. It is this oral element of Renaissance textual indeterminacy that analytical bibliography, an optical, print-based discipline, is simply not equipped to resolve. A brief survey of the extent to which analytical bibliography has in fact contributed to the establishment of a particularly complex Shakespearean text based on four current editions of Hamlet is revealing. Numbers here, but bear with me. Of 604 textual notes on Hamlet listed in Stanley Wells and Gary Taylor's textual companion, only 26, 4.3%, refer to the text as transmitted. The rest note readings abstracted from the relevant documents, treating them as any textual critic, bibliographically trained or not, would. And these are textual notes. These are not commentary notes or annotation. These are all textual notes. But only 4% of those deal with the text as transmitted. Three other recent comprehensive editions, those of Harold Jenkins, Philip Edwards, and G.R. Hibbert, are even more sparing. None of their textual notes so much as mentions as a compositor, perhaps as a matter of policy, whereas Taylor and Wells had the luxury of a companion volume to list and discuss their textual choices. In his introduction, Jenkins discusses the compositors of the second quarto, its press correction, and the compositors of the folio. He concludes that the important questions about folio concern less its printing than its provenance. Not a single explanatory note refers to the printing of any of the three texts, and this in 257 pages of text from commentary and 151 pages of longer notes. Two invoke the confusion of D and E in the Elizabethan hand, but this is a paleographic, not a bibliographic issue. Edwards uses bibliographic evidence in three notes over 171 pages of text cum commentary, and Hibbert in five, three of them paleographic, in over 247 pages. To be sure, the prior work of bibliographers will affect the textual narratives constructed by each of the editors for the three authoritative texts and their interrelations. But in none is it determinative, for these narratives differ significantly one from the other and the actual text they as editors produce are minimally effective. As Jenkins shrewdly observed, the calculations of the error rate of a given compositor, quote, cannot locate the errors they presume, unquote, noting, quote, this is the fallacy that haunts all current research on compositors. Useful as it is to have knowledge of their stints and the errors each was prone to, this cannot still not identify errors. What it may do is to give confirmation of errors suspected on other grounds. More sweepingly, Gary Taylor declares, quote, the printing phase proper, though sometimes of interest to the bibliographer, seldom impinges directly upon the work of editors or the pleasure of readers, unquote. 
a stunning repudiation of over a generation of hard labor, identifying compositors by analytical bibliographers, including Taylor himself. <coughs> this <coughs> compositor's intent on blazing a trail, that is the bibliographical way, for later editors to follow. Meanwhile, <coughs> contemporary bibliographers like Adrian Weiss and Peter Blaney have turned to studies of shared printing, where evidential certainty is a more plentiful commodity than it is in textual criticism, and where the latent idealism of copy text editing has no role to play in their research agendas. As the author, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> as the author recedes, <coughs> try once more, as the author recedes as the exclusive object of editorial recuperation, the textual limitations of analytical bibliography have become more obvious. Editors like Bowers aim to recover the authorial intentions they judge to have been obscured by the modes and materials of their textual transmission. Analytical bibliographers were trained to see the book as a material object. What better alliance? But the underlying idealism of authorial intention as an editorial goal was never wholly compatible with the rigorous materialism of the analytical bibliographer. The fact that both existed in Freds and Bowers was disguised in some sense by his intellectual power and force of character, but they are still quite distinct. As the author recedes as the exclusive object of... <coughs> excuse me. What better... Lost my place. The underlying conflict between the two has been <coughs> rendered explicit by post-structuralism, as Barbara Mowat and Paul Wurstein, among others, have shown. Whereas the detachment of analytical bibliography from editorial theory would probably have occurred in any event, simply because these painstaking bibliographical investigations have, have yielded such meager textual fruit, now that the post-structuralist cat is out of the bag, intentionalist editing and analytical bibliography seem permanently estranged, not only from each other, but as a pairing from current editorial speculation as well. The following progression is noteworthy. In 1982, Jenkins chose the second quarto as his control text for Hamlet in order, quote, to present the play as Shakespeare wrote it rather than as it was shortened and adapted for performance. In 1984, Edwards argued that, quote, the ideal version of the play does not exist in either of the two main authoritative texts, but somewhere between them, unquote. He assumed that a process of degeneration began once the play became the property of Shakespeare's colleagues who began to prepare it for the stage. His text is a conflated one. In 1987, Hibbert concluded that Folio <clears throat> is based on Shakespeare's fair copy of a revised text and is so, quote, used as the control text for the present edition. Passages unique to the second quarto now follow the edited text. But in 1987, Wells and Taylor frankly espouse the folio as control text for substantives, precisely because it represents Hamlet as a theatrical text, and a theatrical text is by definition collaborative. Within half a decade, the autonomous author as writer mutated into the socialized author as actor, director, sharer. To sum up, first, the inherent limitations of analytical bibliography, particularly as it is represented by compositor analysis, have prevented its accomplishing the task it was assigned. 
to recover the copy from which the authoritative text of Shakespeare's plays were set, and by so doing, isolate and quarantine the agents of transmission from the authentic authorial Shakespearean text. Second, even if analytical bibliography could construct those lost autographs, scribal transcripts, and marked up quartos, the search for what Shakespeare wrote would still be unsatisfying and unsatisfactory because in working backward upon the compositional timeline towards a sought-for archetype, we encounter less, not more, stability, less, not greater coherence, less, not more, aesthetic completion and consequent textual resolution. Postmodern critics may seem quite content to forego stability, coherence, aesthetic completion, and textual resolution, but editors are loath to relinquish their investments in these parameters of the text. Given the nature of the surviving text, those qualities are realized, if at all, only in a forward-moving direction. And that means as we move towards the play script as realized in production or performance, whether that production performance be a mental one, internalized in the reader's brain, an actual one, mounted on a physical stage or projected on a movie screen, or an editorial one, manifested in print, hypertext, website, or CD-ROM. As my colleague at the Graduate Center, David Greetham, has observed, when the Pergamanian and the Alexandrian schools of textual study competed over two millennia ago for the establishment of Homer's correct text, it was the Alexandrians who argued that it was, quote, possible to recreate a genuinely Homeric usage out of the corrupt documentary remains simply by constructing an ideal paradigm of correctness, involving, therefore, a critical evaluation of this documentary evidence and an ability to recognize the Homeric reading from the merely scribal, unquote. By contrast, their Pergamanian rivals, quote, invoke the principle of anomaly, unquote, and maintain that it is impossible to create or recreate an ideal form of authorial usage because all utterances and readings are anomalous. As Greta notes, the polarities of analogy and anomaly under different names and different dispensations have been present from the beginnings of textual criticism in the West, and the debate between their constituencies shows no sign of waning. Hershey confronts the intractably fallen, fragmented, anomalous materiality of Shakespeare's authorially offering textual remains. Thank you.